Well, welcome. We're glad you're here tonight. My name is Wade Humphreys. I'm the pastor here at Longview Point, and uh, on Wednesday nights, we've been just having some time in God's Word, studying different things, and, and the last time we were together, the Wednesday before spring break, we began a study in the book of Genesis, a study we're calling In the Beginning, In the Beginning. So we got started last uh, two weeks ago, and you didn't miss much because we only got through one verse, okay? There are 50 chapters, and we got through chapter 1, verse 1, so you didn't miss much, so if you weren't here a couple weeks ago... Glad you're here tonight. We'll have a wonderful time walking through the book of Genesis. Anyone need a sheet? Has everybody got a sheet? All right. And I think you will be blessed by this study. So why the book of Genesis? Well, you'll see tonight there's a lot of talk out there about the origin of the universe and how we got here. And it's important we know what the Bible says about those issues. And there's a blockbuster film coming out, Noah and I'm pretty sure, based upon the previews and things I've heard, that it's not going to be real accurate. And so I thought it would be a great time for us just to say, what's the Bible say about Noah? It's amazing when you actually read the Bible, what the Bible says. And so we'll, we'll study the biblical Noah and get the truth on, on who he was and, and what that story is all about. So very excited about studying our way through the book of Genesis. Let me pray for us tonight. We're going to pray and uh, ask God to bless our time in His Word, and then we will get started. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. We are so grateful tonight for Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy and Your love. And Lord, I pray uh, that tonight You would, Lord, Lord, bless us with Your presence. I pray that You would uh, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture, and we might learn them and not just learn them, Lord, but learn them in a such a way that we apply them. Lord, we don't want to be guilty of being merely hearers of the word and not doers of the word. We want to obey what we learn. So, Lord, help us to obey what we learn tonight. And I pray that what we study tonight in your word would, would be life-changing. It would change uh, our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. We love you tonight, and uh, we offer you this prayer in the name of Jesus. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to talk tonight about the creation, the creation. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you remember I said that Genesis answers the big picture questions about life, such as, is there a God? What is God like? Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? So those, those big picture questions that everyone wants to know. I'm talking about Christian, non-Christian, regardless of where someone lives. They want to know the answer to these questions. And Genesis has the answer. If we understand Genesis, we will understand the, the answer to these vital questions. So here's the first question that we want to look at. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about the, the question, is there a God, and what is God like? We, we answer those two questions from God's Word. But tonight, we're going to focus on that third question, where did we come from? Where did we come from? Now, I want you to hear me carefully uh, uh, concerning what I'm about to say. Everyone agrees. Atheists, um, Christian, you, you name it. Everyone agrees that has intellectual integrity. Everyone believes that the universe had a beginning. The question is, to use 
maybe poor grammar. What begun it? Right? What begun it? What 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 precipitated the beginning or in our our instance who precipitated the beginning of the universe? The hotly debated issue is this. How does one explain the beginning and the current state of the universe? How does one explain the beginning and the current state of the universe? Now, I want to begin by looking at some different options that people offer to explain the existence of the universe. These are different things that people say to, to try to convey their, their thoughts about the reason the universe exists, the reason we exist, the reason we are here right now. The first is naturalism slash evolution, because they are closely related. Naturalism slash evolution. Naturalism is the view that nature is all there is. Nature, matter, that's all there, there is. There's, there's nothing uh, in the unseen realm. There's nothing supernatural. Everything that exists that is real, according to this view, is matter, nature. Um, Carl Sagan wrote a famous book called uh, Cosmos, and his famous line in that book was, uh, the cosmos is all there ever was, all there ever is, all there ever will be. In other words, he's saying there, there is no God, it's just the cosmos. And, and that's the view of naturalism. Naturalism says that natural causes working on their own, you've got to remember that, on their own, are capable of producing everything that exists. Naturalism says that natural causes working on their own, no outside force, but working on their own, are capable of producing everything that exists. So something as, as intricate as the eyeball, with all the different parts that make it up, they would say that, that nature, through a series of, of long evolutionary modifications has given us the eyeball and nature did it on its own there was no there was no outside force working in that it was just nature doing its thing evolving and that's the view of naturalism now a popular theory built upon the foundation of naturalism is the evolutionary theory you've, you've heard of that the evolutionary theory and that comes largely from a book written by charles darwin in the 19th century his book was titled, On the Origin of Species. Now, it's interesting in today's time, when you see this book mentioned, they just call it Origin of Species. It actually had a much longer title, and it's there in your notes. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. You don't see that, that, that long title, but that was Darwin's title. And that idea of, of favored races, uh, you know, only the strong survive. You know, you have races that are superior to other races led to a lot of atrocities in the 20th century. It led to the views that undergirded Hitler's uh, genocide of the Jews and, and other atrocities. That it, Hitler was trying to get to a master race. And, and it was built upon this idea uh, of only the strong survive, natural selection, that was popularized by the writings of Charles Darwin. Now that's the... That's the ugly side no one wants to talk about when it comes to evolutionary theory. But you can't deny what history shows us. And I, give you, I gave you a definition for evolution 
there, and, and I, I use the evolution from a website, berkeley.edu. In other words, these are folks that believe in evolution, all right? This is not my, this is not the Baptist preacher's, uh, you know, str- straw man. I'm, I'm not, I'm not kind of making some stuff up to make it sound bad. I want you to hear what the evolutionists are saying evolution is. This comes from a website of those who are, who are evolutionists or naturalists. Biological evolution, simply put, is descent with modification, which means groups of organisms descend from a common ancestor, all right, some, some single-celled organism in some, in some primordial ooze, descend from a common ancestor, and with a passage of time, acquire modifications. So, so without any outside intervention, a, an organism uh, began to make, uh, began to have genetic modifications that led to to all that we see today in terms of species. That's what evolution is. This definition encompasses small-scale evolution, which is changes in gene frequency in a population from one generation to the next, and large-scale evolution, the descent of different species from a common ancestor over many generations. All right? Uh, Some call that micro and macro evolution. And, And according to Berkeley, evolution helps us to understand the history of life. All right? Here's the explanation of what it's all about. Biological evolution is not simply a matter of change over time. Lots of things change over time. Trees lose their leaves, mountain ranges rise and erode, but they aren't examples of biological evolution because they don't involve descent through genetic inheritance. The central, listen to this, the central idea, this is not, these are not wage words, this is Berkeley, all right? The central idea of biological evolution is that all of life on earth shares a common ancestor, just as you and your cousin share a common grandmother. Through the process of descent with modification, the common ancestor of life on earth gave rise to the fantastic diversity that we see documented in the fossil record and around us today. Evolution means that we're all distant cousins. This will bless you. Humans and oak trees. Hummingbirds and whales. That's what evolution teaches. I like this quote from John MacArthur in his excellent book, the Battle for the Beginning. If you haven't read The Battle for the Beginning by MacArthur, if you don't have it in your home, it's a great book to buy. MacArthur wrote this, The naturalist, if he is true to his principles, must ultimately conclude that humanity is a freak accident without any purpose or real importance. In other words, remember they said that it's descent through modification, genetic changes with no outside force working. So these things just happen naturally. Okay, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just happened. And we're trying to just understand that it happened, and, and there's no reason behind the reason, uh, the reason behind it happening. He writes, Naturalism is therefore a formula for futility and meaninglessness, erasing the image of God from our race's collective self-image, depreciating the value of human life, undermining human dignity, and subverting morality. That's John MacArthur's take, and I believe it's an appropriate take on naturalism. But naturalism, evolutionary theory, you need to understand, rules the day in our academic institutions. And it rules the day when it comes to popular media. It rules the day when it comes to the entertainment industry. And all of those different arenas in society, when they hear someone uh, espouse a creationist worldview, they turn their wrath on that person and shout them down and try to make them look foolish. And so we need to understand that naturalism rules the day. Uh, I grew up, you know, going to school. Parents sent me to school. And 
I was a Christian. I, I, I professed my faith in Christ. I, I believed the Bible. The preacher preached. I believed what he was saying, and I, I was a, a Bible-believing Christian. And I started to go to school, and I had biology class, and we just learned evolutionary theory and saw all the little charts. You know, you went from a fish or, or from a you know, monkey and then different forms of, of humanoids, and eventually there's a man walking, you know, and you see those, see those pictures there and fish to a dinosaur and all these, all these different things. And, uh, or dinosaur to a bird or whatever. And, and you see all these different pictures. And without even critically thinking about it, I said, well, that sounds plausible. I mean, that makes sense. There's fossil records and, you know, there's carbon dating. And so, yeah, okay. I buy. So for a while there, because I never really thought about it, I had these parallel tracks running in my, in my mind where I thought, okay, the Bible's true. And, you know, evolutionary theory, that must be true too. And it never, it never occurred to me that those both can't be true. What we're about to study in chapter 1, that can't be true, and evolutionary theory be true at the same time. I'll talk some more about that in a moment. And so there came a moment, a time in my life, where I realized those two worldviews clashed. I had to evaluate the evidence and, and say, is there good evidence for what I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? It was a good process for me to go through. But uh, my beliefs in, in high school, in college were under attack it was it was deemed silly not to hold to the evolutionary theorem they just couldn't imagine someone not being a naturalist and so that's the that i would say that is the prevailing view in our culture today when it comes to academia when it comes to entertainment when it comes to popular culture that is the prevailing view but here's a second view for why the universe exists why we are here it's creationism try the word creation and put an ism on the end creationism And to describe that view, I've given you a definition from Alan Ross in his great book, Creation and Blessing. Here's what Alan Ross says creationism is. We're going to study this in a moment and unpack it. Here's what he says. Out of the darkened chaos, God sovereignly and majestically created the entire universe in six days, bringing about perfect order and abundant fullness for people to enjoy and to rule. And then blessed and sanctified the seventh day which marked the completion of creation that's creationism there it is in a nutshell that god created everything in six days rested on the seventh day and he created those things with a purpose for man to enjoy and man to rule over more about that next week but uh, that's a a a one uh, sentence view of what creationism is so creationism is taking the bible's account of creation from chapter one of genesis at face value Taking God at his word. That's what creationism is. Third is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. This view states that God used evolution, theistic, as a means for creating. God used evolution as a means for creating. So these are folks trying to reconcile both worlds. You know, okay, I know that, you know, Wade's talking about the Bible and all of that, and but, you know... You know, I, I've been to biology class, and I've seen the charts, and so I, you know, I believe that is a good you know, theory, a plausible theory. And so maybe I can bring these two things together. And people attempt to bring those two things together using theistic evolution, saying, well, what everyone's saying, all the scientists are saying about evolutionary theory is true, but God's the one that set it in motion. So God used evolution to get what he wanted through millions of years, eventually, you know, a, a world that is inhabited by humans 
Okay, so God, God was, God was, God was using evolution to get to what we have today. Okay, more on that in a minute. Okay, that's theistic evolution. I think it's fraught with difficulties, and I'll show you why as we work our way through. So here's a good next question. We looked at some different, and there are different other different theories out there, but these are the three that most of us will, will deal with in our lifetime. Here's what we need to ask ourselves. What does the Bible say? That's always a great question. If you find yourself confused or perplexed and you're trying to figure something out, ask yourself, what does the Bible say? That's a great question. And listen to me. A lot of people, you'd be surprised, argue about this stuff and they've never read the Bible. They think they know what the Bible says, but they've never actually read it. So it's amazing what happens when you actually just read the Bible. So what does the Bible say? Number one, I'm going to give you some, some thoughts here. God created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. Look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 with me. We talked about this a little bit last week. Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning... God created, God created the heavens and the earth. God created heavens and the earth, something from nothing. That's what the Bible teaches. Turn to Psalm 33 very quickly with me. Psalm 33. I want to show you other passages that speak of this. Theologians call this creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Psalm 33 How's it going? Do I sound like Adrian Rogers yet? Is it my voice getting deeper? Is it all right? <laughs> Psalm 33, verse 6. The Bible says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke. And it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. So God's the one that spoke, and everything came into existence. Everything that is in existence came to existence because he spoke. Now, turn to Hebrews with me in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, watch this, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God created everything by his word, not with existing material, but he, he created everything out of nothing. That's what the Bible teaches, which, by the way, speaks of his breathtaking power. Right? His breath taking power. I, I've discovered that I can't use my words to make anything. How about you? I mean, you don't walk into your kitchen and say, soup! That'd be nice, right? Doesn't work out so well. You know why? We're not God. But when God speaks, things happen. That's what the Bible 
teaches. Now, here's the second thing that the Bible says about creation. This is going to blow your mind. A lot of people don't think about this, but it's all over the Bible. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. Remember I told you last week that Genesis 1-1 speaks of the triune God. One God in essence and nature existing in three persons. Who are the three persons of the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One of the songs I love singing with my kids at night at bedtime is the doxology because it's good theology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. At the very end of the song it says, Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the Trinity. And so I I love to to remind my children that God is one. There's one God, but the the essence of God, the nature of God, the the godness of God, if you will, exists in three uh, separate Equal, equal, eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all possess the essence of Godness. The, the one essence of God. Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't. It's bigger than for, for us to wrap our minds around. But it's what the Bible teaches about God. We're, we, we, we articulate what the Bible says, but we can't fully grasp what that's all about. But the Bible clearly speaks of the Trinity, and the Bible teaches us that all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, were involved in creation. They're all eternal. They were there before creation, right? All three. They were there before creation, and they were all involved in it. So let me show you this in the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Guess what? We're going to verse 2. The Bible says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of uh, the deep. And so it seems here that God uh, created the materials that he was going to then put into order. More about that in a moment. And, and, and it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So I saw one commentator that says this is like a, a, a potter getting a lump of clay and putting it on the wheel to prepare to make it into something beautiful. And all the materials were there that God created, that he was going to then form into what we call the universe and our earth and, and, and all of that. But notice there, over this, this earth that God had created, it was without form, without void, dark. In other words, it was not conducive to life. You know what's amazing about the planet Earth? The, the planet Earth is conducive to human life. It's amazing. No other planet we know of is conducive to human life. Earth is. You know why? God finally tuned it for us. But in this moment, in this moment, the earth was not ready for humans. It was not in its finely tuned state. But notice what the Spirit of God's doing. Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word hovering is used over in Deuteronomy, I think it's around 33, to speak of a a bird fluttering over its chicks. And so the Spirit of God is, is is just hovering over the, the earth is not ready for humans yet. And he's ready to do his father's bidding. He's ready to go into action and make it into a, a, a planet that is viable for human life as a display of his glory. So we see here the spirits involved. Of course, God in verse 1. We, we would probably relate that to God the Father. He, he's involved when it says God said in verse 3 and God said in verse 6 and and God said in verse 9, we would say that relates to God the Father taking the lead role in, in initiating creation. But you say, what about Jesus? Where was Jesus in all of this? Well, turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. 
This is really good. You're going to like this. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. You say, wait, who, who is the Word? Well, there's some more detail. The Word was with God. So we see the Word here separate from God. We would say separate from God the Father. But the Bible says the Word was God. That's doctrine of Trinity. So we see two who are called God, right? But they're separate. All right? Okay, well, who is the Word? It says he was in the beginning with God. Well, if you want to know who the Word was, look in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ. So the Word was in the beginning with His Father, with God the Father. What was He doing with His Father at the beginning of all things? Look what it says back in verse 3 of John chapter 1. All things were made through Him, through the Word. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So everything that was created, everything that was made, was made through the agency, through the power of Jesus Christ. And let me show you another verse to speak to this. Turn to Hebrews. New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, the Bible says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, what's it say? He created the world. And so God the Father created the world through the agency, through the power of Jesus Christ. And so I don't know what all that looked like. I wasn't there. But we know that the Father had a role in creation. The Son was the agency through whom God created everything. And the Spirit is there hovering. The Spirit is there in the creative act. So all three persons of the Godhead are involved in creating everything. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Incredible what the Trinity has done in creating the universe. All three Persons were involved. Now, here's the third thing. Here's where we're going to spend most of our time. What does the Bible say? God used a process. And the process was not evolution. The Bible tells us the process that God used. And this process is defined in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 3. These verses describe that process. And the process can be summed up in two statements. First of all, God formed and filled. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to show you this. This is really powerful. God formed and filled. So remember, in verse 2, we see the earth in its uninhabitable, uh, inhabitable, Uninhabitable state, alright? Thank you. Uninhabitable state. Verse 2. There's darkness without form, without void. Human life could not live there. So God's going to take 
the materials that he created, this earth that's without form and void, without form and void, and he's going to form it, and then he's going to fill it. Now, here's the cool part. You ready? On the first three days of creation, God formed. And on the next three days, God filled what he formed. Now, a lot of people don't get that. They just kind of read through the days and look at what God created. But what God's doing there is he's forming. It was without form, but it was also empty, it says in verse 2. So he filled up the emptiness with something. Let me show you a chart to help you to understand this. Put the chart up on the screen. This is a, this is a uh, chart that helps you understand how the problem that the earth was created, uh, the earth was formless and empty, how it was um, dealt with. We'll get up, there it is. Uh, how it was dealt with. So notice there, on the uh, left side of the chart, we see what God did to form. Day one, he formed light and darkness. Look what it says there in verse 3. God said, let there be light. Love that verse. And there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning the first day. So on the first day, God created light. And there was this difference between light and darkness. Now, we need to be more specific. He's going he's to fill it up in a little bit, but he's forming light and darkness right here in this verse. On day two, back on the chart, day two, he... He formed the sky and the sea. Look what it says there in verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening, there was morning, the second day. So God's forming here, all right? And he takes the waters. Probably the earth consists of a, a great thick uh, fog or mist uh, as all the water was just kind of clumped together but you understand now that there's water in the sky right that's why, why we have clouds and there's water on earth and and the water in the cl cl uh, in the sky and the water on earth are constantly going through this this process uh so we have what we call precipitation that's that's constantly happening in our world well this is when it all started god took the waters and put some up in the sky separated by what he called the heavens or the the sky, the blue sky you see outside, and he put some water on the ground, what we would call oceans, lakes, rivers, you know, ponds. And so because what, of what God did in day two, we have clouds in the sky and water on the ground. Everybody got that? God's just forming here. He's taking, he's taking the clay, and he's, he's making beautiful things happen here on day two. It says in verse, uh, verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear. It was called, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. This is day three. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. So let's look at the chart again. Let's look at this chart to help us understand what God's forming on day three. I'm giving our guys a workout with the new stuff. All right. Day three, God formed fertile earth. All right. There was, there was this earth that separated from the waters. 
So if you look at a, a globe, you'll see that much of the globe consists of water covering the, the face of the earth. But much of the globe is covered by land mass. And God did this on day three. He's forming things up. And this, this earth that he, he formed was fertile earth. All right, There were trees there that were able to bear fruit and uh, yield their seed. And so this is the day that God put all the, you know, all the wonderful vegetation uh, on, uh, on the earth so that we can enjoy it. That's day three. So the first three days, God formed. All right, Light and darkness, separated the waters, and then put fertile earth in the midst of the waters on the earth. That's God forming. Everybody got that? Now, the next three days of creation, God's going to fill it up. Because remember the problem in verse 2. It was formless and void or empty. So the first three days, he dealt with the formlessness and, and made it into something. The next three days, he's going to deal with the emptiness. He's going to fill it up. So how did God fill it up? Well, look what it says on day 4. God said in verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights in, in, from our perspective on earth. The greater light to rule the day, that's the sun. And the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And we know that the moon reflects the light of the sun. Pretty awesome reality. And it says, he also put the stars in place. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. So on day one, God created light and darkness, but it was still, it was still empty. He needed, to, he needed to make it into something. And he filled it up on day uh, four when he made the greater light, the sun, and the lesser light, the moon, for the light that we receive here on earth. God is filling up his creation. On day six, I'm sorry, day five, God created the aquatic animals and birds and filled up the waters in the sky. Look what it says in verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. All you fishermen ought to say amen right there. All right? And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. All you dove hunters, quail hunters. All right? So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. So you, you see all of these, these animals that are in the ocean and in the rivers and that are flying in the sky. And you say, where'd they come from? They came from day five. God's filling up his creation. On day two, he did the sky and the sea, right? He formed it. Day five, he fills up what he formed. Everybody see the connection there? Day two and day five go together. Uh, you know, I'm from Florida originally, and uh, I always enjoyed fishing uh, on the Gulf, uh, saltwater fishing, because when you throw, uh, when you throw your, your bait into the water, you never know what's going to bite it. You just don't have a clue. Any, anything can get it in the ocean. And, and I've spent some time as well doing a little bit of spear fishing uh, on what they call the flats there right off the, the coast of Taylor County. And uh, we have a great time. But when you're spear fishing, you're, you're kind of snorkeling along and you're in some like high grass. You just don't know what's going to swim by you. It's a little bit, you know, a little bit iffy sometimes. But, but, but you're out there and, 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 it, and it's wonderful because there's so much life in the ocean. And, and God just spoke. 
And it was there. One day. One day. And he just filled up creation with birds and with fish and all the, all the things that are in the sea. Now, what did he do on day six? Day six corresponds with day three. Day three, he, he created fertile earth. Remember that? He fills it up on day six. Look what it says uh, in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then, look what God does here. More about this next week. But God said, let us make man in our image. So there's a difference here. Can you see it between all the other animals and man? The other animals God just created. But then God says, let us create man in our image. No other animal is given that privilege, right? That's why I believe Christians ought to, we ought to have uh, sensitivity towards animal life. We ought not to be cruel. The Bible says in Proverbs that a wicked man is cruel to his, to his livestock. So we ought never to be cruel. I, I remember uh, being around some, some hunters with my dad, and they used dogs to hunt. And I just remember how cruel they were to those dogs. And it just, it just made me, oh, it just made me cringe on the inside. And, and I, I don't think Christians should ever be cruel to animals. But we, we ought to recognize that humans are of much more value than any animal. Much more value. Because humans are created in the image of God. That's what the Bible says. I mean, a lot can be explained right there. A lot can be explained, all right? Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to break this to you, but your dog doesn't have a soul. Okay, Jesus didn't die for your dog, right? He died for you, right? Because you are the one created in the image of God. You're the one that Christ came to redeem. Now, pets are great. We have a pet. I love pets. I've always had a pet. Pets are wonderful. Will there be dogs in heaven? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, there's no Bible verse that says there are no dogs in heaven. But I guarantee you that uh, our relationship with Christ is going to be preeminent uh, in heaven. But we know here that God created all the animals. They're going to be filling up the earth, and he creates man in verse 26. Look, look what he says. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The reason you can go to Kroger or Walmart or, you know, Sam's or Aldi or wherever you do your shopping is because, and you can go to the meat section and buy chicken or fish or, you know, beef or pork or whatever. The reason you can do that is because man has dominion, right? We, we have ability to control the animal population and use them for food and other things because God has given man dominion. So it says there in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you, watch this, Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Now, here's something interesting. Before the fall, uh, Adam and Eve were, veg- were vegetarians. He doesn't give them the animals for food. He says you have dominion over them, but he gives them the, the, the plants and the trees that bear fruit and vegetables for food. Everybody see that? Just a little interesting insight. I'm not, I'm not making a case for vegetarians. Trust me. But I just want you to notice that over after the flood, God 
God gives Noah and his, his kin permission to eat animals. So we'll talk about that when, when we get there. You shall have them for food. Verse 30. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. So here's what he's saying. Not only am I giving you plants for food, I'm giving all the animals plants for food. Real quick side note here. For the biblical account to be accurate, there had to be a time when dinosaurs and humans coexisted. Okay? There had to be. For us to, for the biblical timeline to make sense. And people say, how in the world could, could humans be around the same time there were dinosaurs? Dinosaurs were vegetarians. Before the fall. After the fall, everything changed. Then the flood, and that changed everything. But we'll get to that later. That was a quick little insight, alright? Look what it says. And, he says... It was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So I hope you see from this, this chart, let's look at the chart one more time. I hope you see from this chart the, just the beauty of God's creation, the foresight that he had. It wasn't just random. This is God forming on day one, two, and three. And on day four, five, and six, he's filling up what he formed. And then in chapter two, on day seven, he rests from his labor. And he says, it is Good. So that's what God did. That's how he formed everything in seven days. We'll talk more about rest uh, next week. But just kind of a quick word. Why six days? I mean, is God all-powerful? Is he? Yes, according to the Bible, he's all-powerful. So God could have done it in six seconds. Right? Or six milliseconds. Or six minutes. So why six days? And why this rest thing on day seven? If God's all-powerful, he doesn't get tired. In fact, the Bible says he doesn't get tired. The Bible says that he never sleeps or slumbers. So why six days and then the seventh day of rest? What's that all about? You know what God's doing? God is establishing a pattern, a rhythm of life for us. You work six days and you have to have a rest day to recharge and be able to get back out there and do what God's called you to do. And that pattern is all throughout the Bible. That's how God intends us to live. God does not intend us to live without rest. He doesn't need rest. But we do, right? And God took the seventh day and called it a day of rest to show us what the rhythm of our life ought to be. And that's just another quick thing. We'll get to more of that next week. 